You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 18 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Most of us will probably see some clients go through a divorce or relationship breakdown, which usually results in a splitting of assets, and that often has significant tax implications. But before we look at these tax implications in another episode, let's look at the family law that governs the splitting of assets. I ask Angelina Teresi of Family Law Practice Australia to help us better understand the legal side of a divorce or relationship breakdown because it is difficult to work on the tax side when we know little about the legal side. I started by asking Angelina what the difference is between family law and the Family Law Provision Act. Here's her answer. It's called Family Law Provisions Act. Oh, okay, so that's very confusing. You have family on the one side yeah, that covers... Contesting and unfair will is the best way that I can explain it. So you've got Family Law, which is the Family Law Act 1975, which deals with parenting issues, parenting meaning children, what's going to happen to the children, who are they going to live with, who are they going to spend time with. And the assets. And then you've also got the property aspect, what are going to happen to the assets, how is it going to be split, who's going to get what. Family Law Provision Act is dealing with inheritances, unfair wills. So someone's been left out of the will and they want to get some kind of um, outcome from that will. So they're saying, I've been left out of the will, I want something. That comes under that category. I see. That's not family law. Okay, and so most family lawyers don't cover the Family Law Provision Act? No. So who, who usually covers the Family Law Provision Someone Act? Someone like who does... Um, estates, estate planning and wills and all that. But it's a different court. It's a different court. It's a Supreme Court. When you decided to study law, was family law your ultimate goal or did you kind of grow in interest as you went through your law studies? At that time I was a paralegal and I was doing personal injury and from Working in personal injury laws changed, the workers' compensation court closed and I didn't know where to go or what to do, but I was still doing personal injury. I worked at a law firm when I got admitted. So you say when when a solicitor becomes fully qualified, you have an admission in the Supreme Court, a beautiful graduation as well. That sounds very nice. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, in front of three judges, you have this big ceremony in the Supreme Court. And then after that, I was still doing personal injury and then military law. In that law firm, they had a family law section and that family lawyer became a barrister. So she had left behind her practice and they put forward to me, would you like to do family law? And I, of course, said yes and then I haven't looked back since. So with personal injury, a lot of um, changes happened and a lot of I found a lot of solicitors moved out of it as well as barristers. They didn't continue doing personal injury. 
personal injury, they completely changed. And I didn't want to be one of those people that had to be left behind and not do it. So there's very few people who do personal injury. Because there's no money in it or because it's too complicated? No, or the legislation actually changed and closed a lot of things. So you don't need as many solicitors, for example, in workers' compensation. The actual workers' compensation court closed. So it's in the commission. So it's not run by a lot of solicitors and barristers. That field of law became um, redundant, almost redundant, but you still need them, but you don't need as, as many. many as what was out there. Before it used to be a very big part of law, whereas it became minute and there's only quite a few people who work in it and specialise in it. So, But with family law, that hasn't happened to family law yet. I, I think it's always going to keep growing and um, there's always different aspects of family law, parenting, you know, the children, um, same-sex marriages that's come out now, Which, but same-sex has always been part of family law. That was under the category of de facto. There's always relationships, breakdowns or, you know, something happening in family law that mm. there's always going to be requirements of solicitors and barristers. Taking one quick step back. Yes. What is military law about? So that is... Um, All things Army, Navy, and um, the Air Force. So, it is it unfair dismissal law. or is it a combination of anything okay. that came along? Okay, so anything we were that actually has to do next this. to um, the department of one of the Army, Army, well, not no military. We were next to the Defense, sorry, Defense Force. We were next door to the Defense Force. Mm -hmm. So we got a lot of work through the Defense Force. So some of them were unfair dismissal workers' compensation, but to do with the military and so forth, mm -hmm. different different types of... Um, so that's quite a broad area then. It was, it was, but I didn't get into it as much as I did with family law when I mm -hmm. took over her practice because you can only do so many matters mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed family law and mm -hmm. just haven't looked back. That that was also fascinating as well. And was it, was it kind of a good start from the beginning that you realised pretty much straight away, this is really my thing? Or was it first very, very hard and you only grew to love it after some time? Oh, no, I loved it straight away. Mm -hmm. I, I actually enjoyed it as a, as a um, an elective subject that I chose when I was studying law. I mm -hmm. enjoyed family law then. Mm -hmm. But my, where I was working didn't have family law. It was only when I changed to that other firm mm -hmm. that had a division of family law that I got into it. Whereas where I was before was only doing personal injury. At what stage um, do clients usually contact you? Do they usually come after the decision or do they... Of a breakdown? Yeah, or most of them contact you very, very early when they are toiling with the idea. Exactly then, mm -hmm. as well as after they've broken up. So you get a variety. You get some people who are... are you, I'm going to use your words, I like those words. Toying with breaking up with someone because they want to know if they were to leave that relationship I'm just going to would they end up on the street I'm not going to keep yeah. saying everyone's married because not everyone's yes. married some people are de facto yes and yeah you're right mm -hmm. so that way relationship I'm covering everybody mm. when someone's in a relationship and for example my latest inquiry that I had this week was a gentleman who's born overseas they're both born overseas and they've come to Australia and they're both um, on a working visa They've had a child since, so she's living off his visa. The main thing was about the child. Mm. 
and the mum wants to go back to her country. So he wants to know, on and off she's always says this, like as in threatening him. On he His main thing was, I want to know, if she were to go back, what's going to happen? How do I see my child if we were to break up? Or otherwise, do I just keep supporting her and she doesn't work because she thinks that she's had a child here in Australia, you don't need to work if you have a child because she promised me that even if they did have children, we would work. And he's just trying to suss out, you know, do I break up with her, do I not break up with her? So, yes, some people do because they want to know financially what are the circumstances. And with family law, there's so many different other aspects of law. There's visa. There's the visa in this case. Tax. There's also tax. And there's also um, account, like an, an accountant. So you can have a tax law specialist or you can have an accountant look at the tax consequences. Mm. There's a whole lot of things involved in family law. It's not just um, peripheral. It's quite wide that you've got a lot involved in family law. So most people come either... Early? Early on to suss out, do I break up? How much is it going to cost me? Or what's a percentage split if I were to break? Like what's my husband going to give me? Mm. Or the husband on the or, or the wife or, or the, the man the will girl. say, mm. how much am I going to be giving away? So they either come very early or they come after the after If it's the event. after the event that it's inevitable that they've broken up, then of course they come in and go, look, what are my rights? Mm. And that's when I see them. But it's it's scarce. It's not anything. Not everybody comes to see a lawyer in family law prior to breaking up. And Some do, you, do though. Yeah. And do you tend to represent more the female part, or do you, or is it mixed? Or mine is mixed. I act for both. I act for both male and female, yeah, and some, some and some same sex oh, okay. as well. And is that the case with most family lawyers that they would represent whoever contact, contacts them, or are there some lawyers who specifically tend to only work some on one side? Some have attracted usually just one side. I take whoever contacts me first because I can't act for the other party. I will act for that person. Mm. What's the area of? Fiercest contention. Is it kids or money or it completely depends? Every couple is different. Oh my goodness. And Every couple is so different. Yeah. Mm. Everyone is so different. Um, it could be someone just running on um, revenge. See, when you see a solicitor, not everyone knows what the outcome that they're after. They just want revenge. Some don't. Some people might come to you, it's very rare, but you do consent orders or a binding financial agreement. So you've got someone who's coming to you that we've already worked out what we want. Can you draw us the documents? Can you draw us up the legal documents? That's very rare. You, but the ones who are litigious are coming with emotions behind them because there's just no way that they can reach an agreement Or you might have someone who's nice about it thinking that they can enter into some kind of agreement or they find that the other party won't let them go and will not negotiate. So when you're going into court, it's litigious. But when you're, when you've got someone coming to you, I've already reached an agreement, then that's obviously different. 
but some things are run emotionally. The, the person who might come to you might be run, coming to you with a lot of emotions behind it because they've gone through whatever it is that they've gone through. It could be domestic violence. It could be someone cheating on them. It could be a variety of a lot of things. It could be that the person um, gambled away everything mm. and they're left with nothing and they've had enough. The person, you know, a business failed and they're almost bankrupt or going through the bankruptcy proceedings and they're fighting. A whole different, a lot of reasons why people break up and come and see a solicitor. So very few people come already with an agreement kind of My experience, I'm talking about me, my experience, yeah. it's a minority of my clients who have reached agreement already before they come and see me. And I have had them though. It doesn't mean I'm saying I haven't, but I'm looking. Later on where they haven't had an agreement, I have reached agreements for them and then they've settled out of court, not needing to go to court. How many actually settle out of court and how many go to go to court? Roughly 50-50? I can easily say 50-50. Some of them who have commenced proceedings still settle out of court because we haven't gone to a final hearing. And I would say that that's about 70% of my clients. Mm. That even though we've gone to court and filed, it's instigated a prompt for them because when they go in that court building, doesn't matter where in Australia... It um, might do the, let's call it the trick, for that other party to try to settle because it's overwhelming, it's very scary, it's a long time that you're spending there, not only in legal costs, but it's a long time that you'll be spending there because you don't get a final hearing in front of a judge years till years later. It could be one year, two years, three years, depending on what type of matter you have and which court you're in and their availability. So they will settle out of court. So... That, I would say, would be about 70%. Once they've commenced proceedings in the court jurisdiction and then they settle by way of consent orders. Okay. So very few actually go all the way to the final very, hearing. Very, very few oh, okay. go all the way to the final hearing. Mm. Stepping back, can you explain what a binding financial agreement is? The word. My best explanation for mm. that is I always say to people, think of the actors and actresses in America who use the words prenuptial agreements. Basically that. It's that. But in Australia, binding financial agreements are entered into before a relationship starts, so before you even live together or marry. During the relationship, you can enter into a binding financial agreement and you can enter into it after you're separated or divorced. Oh, okay. So we call them binding financial agreements because they're at different stages of the relationship. Yes, but bear's prenuptial. Pre means pre you marry. before you marry mm. or before you live together. Mm. So you can at any stage. At any stage you can enter into a financial agreement. And it's only in relation to assets. It's got nothing to do with parenting. Because oh, I've really? had a few people say to me, oh, can I do this binding financial agreement and deal with my children? And what's going to happen to the children? No. Yes, so how, how are the children handled if the binding financial agreement doesn't handle it? It's um, either by way of parenting plan, if people don't want to do consent orders, or court orders. When, by consent or a judge makes a decision as to what's going to happen to the children. So a consent order or a court order is always through the, the, the legal system? Yes. Through a, through a court or a judge? Yes, yes. 
Whereas you could do you could do a parental a plan. parenting plan. Parenting plan outside. A parenting plan is usually done with mediators, but you can do that. Some people opt to do that because they find that cheaper. So when it's to do with money, they find it cheaper, but it's not a legal binding document. A parenting plan is not a legal binding document. Oh, so anybody could default on it? Either, either parent not, could default on it? Well, okay, going into that then, which is a different type of topic, parents do default, whether it's a parenting plan or consent orders, they breach orders and then you have to go to court and put in an application for contravention orders or put in an application seeking orders for something to happen in accordance to the court orders that were made. But that's a whole different topic. So you can't always control people and what's going to happen. And there are always circumstances as to why the children weren't made available to the other party. There could be a reason. Something's happened. Because you're dealing with humans and parents. Anything can happen. So just because you've got court orders doesn't mean they're always going to be complied. There, there will be a reason why it hasn't been complied with, So, which is a different aspect. So if I'm obviously referred by an accountant, which accountants have referred someone to me as a family lawyer, They've already spoken to the accountant about their assets and what tax consequences they have. So I never deal with the tax consequence because that's not my category. Is that normal? Is that normal that somebody would first go to their accountant and then see the family lawyer? My gut feeling is it would always be the other way around, that they would first see you and then you send Funny them. enough, no, because sometimes they see their accountant because they're worried about ah. what's going to happen to their assets and what tax they have to pay. Because not everybody has more than one property. So you're either living in it or you have an investment property. So the investment property, most Australians know that there's going to be capital gains payable. So they're worried about who's going to pay the capital gains or what are the tax consequences in superannuation, like what happens to the self-managed super fund. So most of them have already spoken to an accountant Oh, okay. But what they don't know is what happens to the assets, as in how does everything get split? They're asking about the tax consequences, but then the question is, the big, who gets big what? question, who gets what? How is that split? So the accountant will go, oh, look, I know Angelina. Why, why don't you go and see her and talk to her about that? And then she can talk to me about what I know of the assets and then allow for these other figures and all that stuff. Yes, because so tax we, needs to be taken into a, it, account. It should do. It should do. So depending on whether – so let's talk about investment property and capital gains tax. Capital gains tax, obviously, I only know general information. Capital gains tax is only payable when that asset is sold. Exactly. Okay? So with spouses, like I said, I'm categorizing everybody in under that umbrella. With spouses – If there's an investment property and it's in both names and it's going to be transferred to the other spouse, obviously the tax consequences flows with the person who's received it. Exactly. So the cost the cost base just transfers yes. over. But if you wanted to allow and say, okay, when I'm looking at the whole of the asset pool and what I'm allowing and what percentage split we're going to get, 
pretend the accountant said, oh, I think the capital gains tax is $50,000. So then that's, the spouses will go, okay, well, we want to split that equally or we want to split that 70-30. So you go, you know, 70% of 50000 or it's They're only figures that you know because someone's mentioned those figures. I don't. I can't confirm and say, oh, it's, it is $50,000 capital gains tax because that's the estimate made according to the tax return the year before of that financial year. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, if the tax bracket's going to be higher or lower. I don't know that. And I will tell that to my clients that you've got to be careful when you're working at the figures, you're working at and looking at it as at closest to that latest financial year. So you're not looking at dollar for dollar and you're not getting exactly dollar for dollar. It's like when you're estimating what a property's worth. You don't know what it's worth until it's sold. Exactly. And even a month or two months or three months later, if you had sold it later or prior, it could have been worth more or less. We don't know. No one knows. You can get valuations done and everything, but no one knows exactly the dollar. So how are asset splits worked out? Ah, um, my, I have to say, when I did some research, my yes. original thought was it's easy, just 50-50, and everybody goes their way. But then I read, actually, um, there is no 50-50 no Yeah, rule. there's no formula, there's no rule. So in the legislation, what the court looks at, so I just talk as if it's the court, the legislation, court slash the legislation, they look at a few things. They look at... As at the time when you entered into the relationship, what were the assets that each party had? So you would say so-and-so had whatever amount and the other party might have had another amount. Some people, if they've had nothing or whatever, you work out an asset pool. And that starting point, is that taken out of the settlement? Because that's basically what they had before the marriage, therefore it shouldn't No, go so it depends it. on the duration of oh, the relationship. Okay. So there's, you start with, as at cohabitation, you look at during and you look at as at separation and then the court looks at what are the values as at the day of the hearing. So it's like a timeline. So you look at, let's pretend 1900s, what you had then, I'm not saying people are still alive now in 2017, but just to make the figures easy. Oh, let's say 2000. Okay, 2000, realistic. all right, yeah. realistic 2000 and 2017. If you look at what you had at 2000, in the year 2000, what happened during up until 2017, let's say that that's a separation day and you're going to be in court in 2020, but you're looking at financial contributions and you're also looking at non-financial contributions. So that covers the person who is doing the domestic duties at home and looking after the children. And that's also non-sexist because you've got some men who are stay-at-home dads. You've got a woman who might be a career woman bringing in, you know, bringing in all the money in that. So you look at non-financial contributions are parenting, looking after the children, taking them to school, looking after looking after the house, mowing the lawns, cooking, ironing. And is that treated equally? So if, for example, if you have a husband who earns a million dollars a year and then you have a stay-at-home wife or the other way around, is that then treated equally? That one says, okay, in this year they basically earned each no, half a million? No, that's where the, all the arguments start and this is what you're trying to argue with the judge. So there's no straight... For me, I would never give a straight answer that it is equal because... 
you've got to look at how did that person get their skills? Did the other spouse contribute to those skills for that person to earn those monies? When were they earning their high income? I see. So did it only start after they married? Did it start at the beginning? Did they get married? But let's say, did they marry at 18? Or did they enter into their de facto relationship at 18 years old and assisted them with their studies? Okay, so for example, if one spouse works as a nurse during the night to pay the, the boyfriend's medical studies... Yes. Then... It's a contribution. That would be... Then it might you be... You would argue 50-50. But if they got together after the studies and then one went to earn a million dollars a year and the other one um, looked after less. The, yeah, and or, or after didn't the work children. at all, yeah, and it wouldn't be treated 50-50, no, I'm surprised. No, mm -hmm. so it's always about financial contributions and non-financial contributions and you've got different family lawyers treating everything differently because we will look at the legislation and cases, of course, that will suit our individual clients because we want to get the best outcome for them. So you pick so the cases that you pick what you want support to your position and of course support the position of that client. It's it's not a straight answer because if it was a straight answer no one would be going to court fighting if it was always going to be 50-50 because you've got someone who could get a, a result of 98% which is rare in their favor and 2% to the other one. That's very rare. But you're not always getting an outcome of 50-50 either. Where you think it's a 50-50 and unfortunately the other part, the other spouse is fighting, you need to, you know, fight. Because they might be saying, I want 80% where you think it's a 50-50 split. You're not going to give them 30% because depending on what you're fighting over could be millions of dollars. When If you're fighting over $10,000, I would tell the client, $10,000 is going to cost you more in legal costs. But if they want to fight with, um, no, it's a principle or you don't fight for principle. Family court is not a jurisdiction that's, you know, it's going to give you justice. Family court's only about, let's look at what's before us, especially with um, splitting assets. Let's look at what's before us, what's the contributions, financial and non-financial contributions, and then they'll work out the split and then you've got to show the evidence and supporting evidence as to why you say I want a certain percentage out of the asset pool. Mm -hmm. So does in, in family law do cases play a huge role so it's the, the uh, legislation is it quite vague and then you have to go to a lot of cases to yes. support your position? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. And is that also why the family court is so overhanged because so much is subjective, so much is based yes. on case law, yes. therefore there's a lot of argument whereas if the legislation was clear about black and white, one might be able to get through the through the court cases a lot faster? No, there's just a lot of people breaking up. Oh, okay. So there's it's not, not so much that the legislation no, no, is flawed? No, 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 no. The legislation can be quite clear but it's also got to be just and equitable. So it's not just... Oh, maybe because, you know, someone is with a, a multi-billionaire and they were only with them for five years and they had those billions prior doesn't mean that that person should walk away with nothing. That's not just an equitable. So, you know, you might look at the legislation and it says, okay, this is what you had at the beginning. Well, that person had nothing but debts. But that person who they ended up with might be a billionaire. That's not just an equitable. So you've got to look at, 
different aspects outside of the legislation or supporting to say why you would get just that bit more, if that makes mm-hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah. And I can imagine the length of the relationship plays a big role. Definitely. If, Definitely. If, if a couple has been together for 40 years, I can imagine it goes a lot closer to 50-50. Yes, correct. Than if a correct. couple has just been together or for two or three term, years. Yeah. Usually short term, I would say that the outcome is whatever you went in with, you walk out with. That's what I would say. Within, within three, four, five years. Well, usually they say um, short-term relationships are under 10 mm-hmm. and anything above 10 is the long-term. But then mm-hmm. where, where do you start? Is nine and a half years considered short? I don't really think it's short. Mm-hmm. I would say more under five than I would say under 10 because I think nine and a half years is a long time. But oh, then again, you know, someone else sitting next to me will say, no, 20 years is a long time. But what about the nine and a half years or the nine years and nine months person or the eight years? You know, where where does the line get drawn? So this is why you really need to look at what's been contributed because you might have the parents or people forget about that part of the asset pool is inheritances. People are receiving money during the relationship. Just because you may not have had much at the beginning of the relationship, even though, say, it was under 10, the other party who wasn't as wealthy may have had, sadly, one of their mothers or fathers pass away. So that inheritance, because they received something, went into the asset pool to give the end result of what the asset pool's worth today. Mm-hmm. So just because they might have been together for seven years, in the sixth year they might have received, I don't know, pretend $1.5 million from their parents who passed away or whoever it was that they got it from, inheritances, where does that go? What, because it's under 10 years, it's short-term, it's 50-50? Well, what about that 1.5 million? So you've either got to look at that with splitting assets, it doesn't mean that you have a global asset pool. You can also do it asset by asset. You could split the assets and say, okay, well, these were the assets. That came through inheritance. Through inheritance or whatever, and you you can just split them in different categories. This can be left aside here because this came later in the relationship and this was an inheritance. That person, the other spouse, didn't do anything for their parents' wealth. Mm. They didn't contribute Mm. to that wealth. Do most inheritance go to the person who inherited it? Because my, my gut feeling of justice is... It shouldn't, it sh- I mean, <laughs> I need to be careful. I yes. might really annoy some people yeah, yeah, by yeah. saying that. But my, my gut feeling is it shouldn't be split because it belonged to the parents of one of the spouses and so therefore it had nothing to do with the, other the relationship. Exactly. And so is, is it usually set aside and stays? Not always, no. It depends on the duration of the relationship. So I'll give you an example of where it hasn't been set aside or put as a asset by asset. If you're in a four, over 40-year relationship and that spouse, that's, we'll call them in-laws, if that spouse assists his in-laws and has helped their home and he's a builder and he's built their home, rebuilt their home or renovated the home and then when they got ill and he drove because the other the person who has the parents, they don't drive and if he was doing all the driving taking them to different appointments, you know, sadly they might have had cancer because I'm just thinking of one person mm. specifically who was a builder who did all this. 
and he drove his in-laws to the hospital, assisting them with their medication, going to the pharmacy, doing all the driving around. For four, over 40 years, he's made a contribution to their lives. He's a big part of their lives. Yes, he may not be um, a blood relative, but he's the son-in-law and he contributed a lot. So even though the will was left to his wife and he's not the blood relative, he contributed to the assets yeah. of his in-laws. Yeah, you, it so makes in sense. That way, but, that feels, but that feels fair. Yeah. So that's, again, the court is not unfair or the legislation isn't unfair. I mean, people might want to bite me for saying that, mm-hmm. but I don't look at that as unfair. You've got to put forward the individual story, just like I gave you in that one without mm-hmm. – no one knows who I'm talking about because mm-hmm. I don't mention people's names – but with that individual, you've got to put the argument forward and show that and say through affidavit evidence to the judge, this is what's happened. Oh, here's a photograph. Look, here's the one that's at the hospital assisting them. Not saying that the wife was bad. She was home looking after the children and she couldn't drive. So he had that different role and he did all this running around and he he was the one that took half the house down and then extended it and didn't charge for a lot of money and built on the wealth of his in-laws. Mm. So, of course, that's fair and just and equitable to give him just that little bit more out of what his ex-wife received yeah. out of that inheritance. Yeah, yeah. It, makes, it makes sense. So I, I know it comes down to every case. To just get a general feeling, if, there was, if the parents-in-law died three years before the breakup, and the uh, relationship between the in-laws had had not been as close as my close at all, but it's more, a different story. It's different. More kind of a little war going on over many years. Yeah. Then, then the inheritance probably wouldn't go into the general asset pool. But when there has been a close relationship and the um, I would argue to say no, let's keep it separate. Mm. Whether it happens or not is a different okay. story. Mm. But I would depending on who I'm acting for, would mm. say, yes, let's put it in as a, as a whole global asset pool, or I would say, no, let's separate it. Mm. Let's look at the asset pool, asset by asset, and assess each individual asset. But when an asset is in a discretionary trust, yes. then it's quite safe from family law no. proceedings. No. Oh, okay. It's not. Mm. Nothing is safe from family law because mm. everything goes in the asset pool and it's assessed individually. And, and so you also look at with the discretionary, and I know it is discretionary because the person could be taken out, the beneficiary can be taken out. But what I have seen is the court looks at it, what's been happening? If it's been established for 10, 15 years or however long it's been, what's been the regular pattern? Yeah. So if is the beneficiary the one that's now saying, oh, it's discretionary and I may not be in it anymore. Oh, look, I'm not in it anymore. Well, they only did it a week before court started. Well, the court's going to look at it as in I the judgment, I say. They look at what's been happening. Let's look at all the paperwork. That's why you need to do subpoenas. Say if that person does want to produce documents, you do your subpoenas, you get all the documents. So they look at the distributions of the discretionary trust. And over if, years. Over years. And yes. if over the last 10 years... The well, house, however long the relationship's been yes, going, exactly. they look at the pattern and they say, well, this is what's been happening then. How yeah. can you say last week 
that your name's been removed you as a beneficiary and you get nothing mm-hmm. and you, it's got nothing to do with you. So if there is a discretionary trust and one of the spouses never ever received any distribution from it, then it doesn't go into the asset pool. But if the one of the spouses received... If they were a beneficiary and received nothing, they will still it will still go in the asset pool, but they won't touch it to sell it, for example. They might keep that as a whole and give a different percentage split. It's always looked at it differently. Like it's no straight... I don't have so the a straight first, answer for it because there literally yeah. isn't a straight answer. It's yeah. looked at quite differently because you it's may that may not only be the asset that you're fighting over. There's so many other parts of the asset pool yeah. that they it doesn't mean that because I said that the court looks at everything and everything's included, doesn't mean that they're gonna force someone to sell assets within a discretionary trust. That doesn't automatically happen. You can still keep that as a whole and go, okay, well, your percentage is this, even though you haven't been benefiting from it. Oh, it's only 5% or 10% or whatever it is. Then we will put this in this part here and you will get it. So you just get less from a monetary another monetary amount yeah. from a different part of it. Okay. So the first, this discretionary trust, the first question is, is one is the spouse listed as a beneficiary in, in the in the trustee, mm-hmm. and then if yes, if the answer is yes, then one looks at the distribution. Yes, and then both based on those two criteria, yes. um, something is worked out in the end. Yes, and it doesn't always have to be a judge deciding. It can always be again people enter into consent orders. They don't have to wait to a final hearing. I mean, I've even had recently in November. A person literally entered into consent orders on Friday and the two-day hearing was on Monday and Tuesday. So they only decided to enter into consent orders on the Friday and they didn't proceed with the two-day hearing. So it doesn't mean you have to always have a judge to decide because some people, when they're facing a hearing, they just probably don't want to go through with it. And so people will find compromises and, and sort it out between themselves. Um, what's the relationship between the lawyers usually? Is it, is it usually that the spouses hate each other, but the lawyers you know, are professional and, and talk to each other? Or is it quite often also um, a difficult relationship between the two lawyers? Oh, okay, good question. Very good question. It depends on the individual. So, example, I have gone to hearings without a barrister because the clients weren't in a financial position to have a barrister present, so I'll run it without a barrister. And so on the other side, the spouse will have, for example, um, a barrister and a solicitor there. So the barrister will communicate with me. Some of them can be aggressive and unprofessional because they might just want to intimidate me thinking it's oh, there's no barrister there and thinking that they can get more for their client. I don't know why they would act unprofessional, but it's just some people's egos, I guess. Can you enlighten me a little bit on the on the role between lawyer and oh, barrister? Oh, barrister, yes. So, okay. so usually if, if money is not an issue and legal cost is not an issue, each side would have a barrister who represents them in court. So the barrister does the questioning in court 
and the solicitor does all the background and all the paper, a lot of the paperwork is the best way I can describe and it. And do you have Barrister's to... got the skills of cross-examining someone in a witness box. And do, you need to, skills. and do you need to use a barrister or you're always free to not use a barrister? You don't always have... You don't, you don't have to have a barrister. You can even legally represent yourself. You don't need legal representation. You can go in the family court without legal representation. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have to have a solicitor and you don't have to have a barrister. The reason why you would have a solicitor and a barrister or just a solicitor is because they know the legislation and what cases will suit you and you're not exposing yourself to, you know, questions or, or certain things that... Yes. So you are you a solicitor. Have a protection. I'm a solicitor, yes. I'm not a barrister. Yes. And so when you have a client who can't afford a barrister, then you have to do the cross-examining. You don't have to, but I offer that to clients because not a lot of solicitors are comfortable with um, doing advocacy work. So advocacy work is appearing in court. Oh, okay. Uh, but I'm, my aspect, which I didn't get into when I was talking to you at the beginning that I love advocacy work. When I was a paralegal, I enjoyed going to court every day and I did go to court every day and I just loved the litigation side of things and fighting in, in the courtroom. So isn't there That's a barrister? passion. So isn't there a barrister hidden a barrister, in you? There is a barrister hidden in me, yes. However, I love people and dealing with people and as a barrister, you don't deal with as many people because you're dealing with the solicitors. And I want to deal with the person who needs the help, the assistance. You, you want you you enjoy the close client relationship. Yes, so that's why I've got it like a dual kind of relation, like a dual um, role, I guess. And I can offer to do the advocacy side of work without a client having to pay for a barrister because I just I just I'm passionate about it. Um, it has always intrigued me that the person who does all the work solicitor is not actually the one who then presents it in court um, you know the barrister then comes in hasn't been involved with the case just reads a few papers and then has to present the, the, the case in court not and that it, simple the poor barrister it, is not just reading a few papers the poor things they have a lot of reading to do and they also do preparation they could have up to five folders sometimes to read so it's not a few papers it's quite a lot the poor okay. things so they get quite into the detail they get into the detail and it's not just a week before the matter starts usually a barrister will be briefed either at, from the beginning and so they're involved from the beginning from day dot or they just get involved when a hearing's coming up the final hearing being listed because they want to be part of the drafting of the final affidavit so they will have a say in the affidavit evidence so the because solicitor prepares it because they're the ones that's got to present it to the court so barristers have a big role when they're running a hearing because they don't want to have to present something they don't believe in so they want to not make so sure much it's in believing in the argument that they want to present not a matter of the belief it's more the yes um, they want to present it with a certain angle and so the yes, paperwork has to yes yes has to cover that certain angle you mentioned affidavits before can you can you explain oh what, what it is? the role of so the affidavit? an affidavit is a document that you write a story is my best way to explain it 
So I'm just saying it in lay terms. I'm not saying it from a legal perspective. It's a document that sets out a story. So in family law, it sets out the background. It starts off with the background, and the background is dates of birth of the parties, if there's any children, when they lived together, whether they married, whatever it is, that kind of set out, and when they broke up. Because obviously you wouldn't be in the family court if you didn't break up. And whether you're married, then it'll be a date of divorce or if you haven't divorced. That's what the background sets out. Then you get into other stuff as in, so if it's property proceedings, family law property proceedings, then you set out in there, this is what I had as at the commencement of our relationship. This is what I was worth. This is what happened during our relationship. And they're talking about financials. Then they talk about what happened at the separation. So they're setting out to the judge the story of, this is my story, this is what's happened during my life in this relationship financially. And then they talk about the non-financial contribution. So then in the affidavit then you talk about, oh, I used to always clean the inside of the house and the my husband used to clean the outside of the house. He would always do barbecues every Sundays and he would always mow the lawn and clean the pool. But I would look after the inside of the house and that involved ironing, washing, cooking, getting the kids ready, giving him the food, and you're getting to that. And the affidavit literally says paragraph by paragraph. Why is that relevant? Why is that relevant who cleaned the pool? Because of the non-financial contributions. okay. Who did what around the house? That's not money. Non-financial contributions are what contributions have you made that are non-financial? So who did what around the home? You're trying to establish the non-financial contributions. What was contributed around the home or, you know, your day-to-day living? Um, I I know we're talking about affidavit, but I'm just curious. What weight does parenting take? So a stay-at-home parent looking after the children, how is that valued in court as a a contribution? It doesn't have a monetary amount. There's no exact formula to say, oh, parenting equals this amount. It's a matter of... What happened as at the beginning of the relationship? What assets that person had? What, because, you know, did they ever work? Someone might have been, you know, example, a doctor, and then they had children and decided, well, I'll stop for a few years. So their contributions could actually be more, even though they were a parent, parenting and staying at home for a few years. And when the youngest child went to primary school, kindergarten, their contribution. So it's looked at what that individual is actually has actually contributed financially and non-financially. It's not a matter of every single person equals parenting equals this. And I can imagine the parenting of young children probably counts more than the parenting of teenagers because oh, you mean- with teenagers there would be the possibility to work, whereas with young children it's... No, 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 it's only because it's only looked at up until 18. Okay. So there's no future, there's not as many future needs. So if the child's only one years old and they've broken up, obviously there's another 17 years to bring up the child, so you've got to factor that in. In family law, they look at, yeah, future needs and working out, you know, can this person work? Do they have any skills to work? What is it that needs to happen for that person to work? You know, do they have the capacity to work? Whatever. 
depending on their skills. I mean, they could be coming from another country, not even speak the language, and have a one-year-old child and need... It's not so that's probably to find a job. Yeah. So that probably plays into the asset asset decision as well as yes, as part to of make sure the children assets, are yeah, to look after the children and the future needs of that spouse, what it is that they need. Mm. It's not a matter of parenting equals this mm. or parenting equals always fifty percent of the asset pool. Mm. We wouldn't again. I've made that comment before. We wouldn't be going to court fighting if there was a simple formula. As far as splitting assets, there would seriously be the court will be empty. Mm. Apart from parenting, it would we would be it would be empty. There would be a lot of okay. So coming space. yeah. So coming back to the affidavit. Yeah. So in the affidavit, it's a story. It's a story. The affidavit is a story, and then it's backed up wherever possible with annexures. So you in the affidavit, it's got the story. So you might say, in year two thousand, I bought a house before I moved in with this person and here's my evidence my evidence is the certificate of title showing that the year of when I purchased it the transfer of the amount showing the amount that I paid for it and it's all these years that before we even lived together and then we married like say two three years later so you put you do the affidavit the story and then the annexure goes behind it which is which I call supports. it the evidence which supports yeah. what you've just said I mean, I was born on, you're not going to say, I was born on so-and-so date and then here's my birth certificate. Look, I was born then. That's irrelevant. That doesn't matter. But what you want to say to support what you want to say is the example of I had this home prior to the person even living together and this person's never made it, this spouse has never made any financial contributions. I have always paid the bills. Look at my bank account. My income goes in here. All the bills, look, everything's been paid here. This person has been freeloading off me during our whole relationship. If you want to say that, then show it. Good. And then this affidavit, is that uh, is the tax accountant very often pulled into this? The affidavit, no. The accountant gets more involved when we do a balance sheet, what we call a balance sheet. Or what we suggest as a settlement. Or that will be part of the... Okay, yes, so the balance sheet would say... We do a balance sheet. It's a family law balance sheet. So don't think accounting with your head balance sheet. It's a different kind of balance sheet. And the balance sheet includes the possible tax liabilities. So you've got different headings in the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. The affidavit is the story. The balance sheet is talking about the asset pool for both parties. And you've got two columns. You've got... One spouse's column and the other spouse's column. In there, you've got separate headings. You've got the heading called assets. You've got the heading called financial resources. You've got another heading called addbacks, which um, is not fully existent but still is existent in the form because there's different cases that have come out saying that um, addbacks are not necessarily addbacks anymore, which I'll tell you what addbacks are in a minute. And then you've got liabilities, which is where we need the assistance of the accountant to say capital gains tax aspect, or there's a tax liability in this business. Yeah, or dividend when when the company company the family company pays out yes an amount to the other spouse. And then there's this tax component, superannuation. 
There might be a tax component if it's a self-managed super fund and then you're selling the assets within the self-managed super fund and then you've got to work out what tax component is there. Even though it's going from, if it might be transferred from one party to the other, are there tax tax implement implications so you as are, a result of it? So, you, of course, I would never work it out. I would get the accountant to look at it so you or are, an expert to look at it, depending on what circumstance it is for the individual. Mm-hmm. And so, so you the almost balance sheet is there. And then financial resources is another heading. That's example like... You know, you've got money invested, you're getting rent. Or if you've got investment properties, you're receiving rent. Or um, dividends, you're getting, you know, distributions or whatever. That's a financial resource. That goes under that category. So you've got different headings in a balance sheet, and that's what you're looking at. So a balance sheet is almost always prepared with the input of a tax accountant or tax advisor. I like to do that, Mm. yes, because I won't know what the – I'm not an accountant. Yeah, it would be, I mean, my, my gut feeling, it, it would be silly not to do that because and if, and so if much the, is at stake. And if the, if the spouses don't have an accountant, I would tell them to get an accountant to get the figures because you want to know what you're doing. Because, the, amount, because the, tax, the tax liabilities can, can be, be quite, of can be very high. If there's an investment property and you are going to transfer it to one spouse or if you're going to sell it, especially when you're going to sell it, the capital gains tax is payable. So you might think, oh, this house is worth $5 million, let's sell it. Well, what about the capital gains? You're not going to get $5 million minus the real estate commission. You've got to pay the capital gains on it. Yeah, because I can, I can you imagine. you can't think of it. It can, ima- it can be high. If it's a home main that residence. you're living in, the main residence, you don't pay capital gains. Even if it is transferred to the other spouse, there's no capital gains and there is no stamp duties payable. So the main issue are investment properties where a capital gain tax issue can yes, bite you many years, yes. many years later, hence the... When they're selling it. So it only becomes an issue when they're selling it. Yes. Hence the importance to get the input yes. early on to make sure one is not sitting on a ticking time yes. bomb with a yeah, with, big um, tax bill in 10 years. Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. So it's either but it's always payable when it's sold. So they might think, I'm never going to sell it. It's a holiday home, never going to sell it. Then, you know, circumstances can change. I still want them to know that figure because that way, if it were to happen, they know or have an idea what could possibly be payable Mm -hmm. in the future. And I can imagine it um, can lead to a lot of conflict because if the tax liability is not taken into account... The receiving spouse will basically pay the capital, will be liable for the capital gain tax that relates to the capital gain that was accrued while yes. they were still together. So basically, one spouse has to pay for the capital gain of the other person if we don't take the tax liabilities into account in the in the balance sheet. Yes, correct. Yes, because it's it's transferred to them. Hmm. So if the spouse is transferred. One spouse is transferred it to the other spouse. They no longer have to pay it, but that one there gets 100% of the tax liability. Yeah, but they get, exactly, and they get the old cost base, which still already includes the capital gains. Including all the history of it, yes. Mm. Yeah. Going back to addbacks, because I could see that you were going to ask me about addbacks, my best example of an addback is this. You've got a, this scenario, someone is secretly gambling, going to the casino, gambling away, 
and then they get a mortgage. I don't know how. Somehow the mortgage happens. Maybe it might be fifty percent, whatever, on their on their side. However, it is they get money, and they're gambling away. So all of a sudden, it's somehow found out by that other spouse, and then the spouse finds out. You know, there's a mortgage on the home, which shouldn't have been there because it was. All, they thought it was already fully paid off. So they break up. Now there's, but there's this, this, there is an existing mortgage. With that existing mortgage, I would call that an ad back. I will say that person who gambled, that spouse who gambled the money, let's make the maths easy. It's a million dollar home. There's a $500,000 mortgage. All spent, all gambled. It wasn't for anything. There's no, there wasn't that there was renovation. It was actually at the casino. That half a million dollars, I would put it in as an ad back because I'd say, I don't want to put it in as a liability. That's not a liability as far as I'm concerned. I'll put it in the balance sheet as an ad back. Why is it an ad back? Because the husband or wife or whoever, whichever spouse it is, gambled it away and they've already received that component. I would argue it's an ad back. That's why I would still include things as ad backs because in this circumstance, that spouse who gambled the money, that half a million dollars, they've already received it. Tough that it's gone to the casino, but they've already received it just prior to relationship breaking down. Mm. That's where I would put that in an ad back because I want the judge to look at it as it's not a liability that both spouses should equally take on board. It should be in a different category and it goes into the category of an ad back. And then there's been cases where adbacks are not looked into or considered anymore, which is a whole different would be a whole different. Talk yeah. So on. why? So why is then? You, you, because you mentioned before that adbacks are kind of there's been no a longer few there, cases um, that's re- that's come. Well, I shouldn't say recently. Over the past few years, that are saying that um, the court's not going to look at adbacks anymore for a whole different reason. But it's hours of worth of looking, like talking about. It's a whole different topic ad backs like I'm not exaggerating it really is a whole different topic but just I'm just keeping it simple so I'm not going to complicate things there's been a few court cases recently come out saying that ad backs are not going to be considered with with exceptional circumstances so I will go into the category of exceptional circumstances saying hey this is an exceptional circumstance You've got to look at look at this as an ad back. Mm. This person's already received the benefit of this due to their their actions. Another person, you know, who could burn down a house, the house is gone. Well, they could have that in their category and say, well, that's the value that they've already received because they, you know, the house burned down. down the house. It was their actions. Doesn't matter the reason they were angry or whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm but surprised. if they willfully did that act, yeah. I would still argue that it's an adback. I'm surprised that adbacks are now on weak legal legs. Why? Why this movement against adbacks? Because it sounds like a like a fair, reasonable approach to me. The one, that's because I've given you the good examples. Oh, I've given you the. I see. So what would be a bad example that Christian would because with adbacks not really being there any, anymore. I can also imagine that a spouse might go and empty out the mortgage, you know. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Put it on a Swiss 
bank account saying I gambled it and um, it's no longer yeah, an asset. It's no longer there. It's, an, it's a liability and you've got to um, pay it back. Yeah. The Adbacks case is Stanford, the one that all lawyers are now referring to in the same, same as the court. It's, it's called the case of um, Stanford. But I just can't. And that's kind of, of the first case when Adback didn't come through. Yeah. Or, no, not one of the first ones, but one of the latest ones that everyone's been drawing to because it went it's it's been very big that they and then they've been always referring to St, um Stanford as well in other cases since that decision but it wasn't the first one because it's been over the years since um the 1900s adbacks have always been looking at adbacks but Stanford has given it put a, a question a, a mark on adbacks um, yeah Okay, because recent cases indicate the courts are moving away from the long-standing principle that certain assets, including money spent, dissipated or wasted after separation but before final property settlement can be added to the property pool on a notional basis. So you've got a recent case of Owen and Owen, which highlights a clear trend against adbacks in family law. It's basically it said when a party prematurely distributes an asset, the courts are now reluctant to add the value of the asset back to the property pool. Stanford and Stanford was decided in 2012. And that's the big case. That's the big case in the High Court that casted doubt on whether adbacks were warranted. The High Court commented that property settlements are concerned with alterations of, of the parties existing current legal and equitable interests in property. So accordingly, the adbacks should not form part of the property pool because the parties no longer have an existing interest in that specific asset because it was gone. So so then you've got other cases after Stanford, like the case of Bevan in 2013, that's talking about notional property, which is sometimes classified as adding something back into it. So you've got multitude of cases from Stanford. It wasn't the first, Stanford was not the first case where adbacks were looked at, but it's one of the cases that's saying don't include it because it's like a myth. It's a made-up figure. And it's too difficult probably to work out sometimes was it gambled it or is, not, who yeah. spent it. How much was exactly gambled. So sometimes it may not be that you've got someone mortgaging a home that you can clearly see the figure. The so it probably got just you. too difficult to prove. No, it's not too difficult. It's more as in, you don't forget, you've always got two sides of the story and two people arguing. You've got the supporting solicitor slash barrister supporting one party and then you've got the other one. So it's a matter of, you know, the weight of the evidence and whose evidence is... Not as in so much who's believed it. I'm not saying that anyone's a liar. It's just the credibility and what's been looked at and what's seen. Sometimes you can't give credit because there may not be enough to give to the other party. It may not be, you know, it's not going to work out. If you've only got a pool that's worth a million dollars and you're saying that the other person's already received two and a half million dollars, because they gambled and you're saying, oh, they easily gambled two and a half million dollars. If you don't have the proof or the evidence, the judge, I don't think, would say, I'm going to give nothing to that person 
and give the whole million dollars to the other one just because we think that person gambled a million and a half. If they weren't even earning it, mathematically, how can you reach a, a million and a half? If they're only earning 100000 a year and they were married for 10 years, that's a million dollars. But you've got to pay tax on the income that you earn and you've got to live off it and you've got to pay for day-to-day living expenses. Just because you want an income of 100000 never got pay rise to save, right? Easy maths, a million dollars. That doesn't equal overspending a million dollars. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? So then notionally you can't say this equals this. There's no – the amount that was gambled that you can't prove cannot be included as an ad back because it's not known – it's gone and you can't distribute whatever it is that they're saying that they spent. Mm -hmm. But if it's easily seen because you took out a mortgage – for whatever vice or whatever went wrong and you can see the figure and there are other assets to distribute to be split, then that's a different story. So add backs maybe, but, but depends on the it depends, depends on, on the case. Individual, it's like with anything. Each individual case is looked at. It's not always a formula to equal an outcome. It's always look at each individual matter, each individual circumstances, and you look at it by way of affidavit evidence with however many documents you can to support it in the affidavit, and then you present it to the court, and then hopefully you get an outcome because sometimes judges reserve judgments and you wait for an outcome. You don't immediately get an outcome because they reserve it. So there's no straight answer with anything. It's just you just do your best and put your best foot forward by showing what supports everything. Is super an area where the parties tend to fight a lot? Yes, especially when it's worth a lot. So you know how I said I had military background of law? Superannuation with the military can be worth millions because they have a pension aspect. So that amount is unknown until you get evaluation done of the superannuation. And like I said, it can be worth millions. So if you've got a spouse breaking up with someone who's in the military and they've got a defined uh, benefit defined benefit superannuation fund, um, especially with the pension aspect, they're going to want to have a piece of that pie. And so that makes the asset pool worth more and they're going to say, well, I want some of that superannuation. So you either have a superannuation split or you have um, a superannuation flagging depending on, you know, the circumstances. And there are also sometimes tax consequences, which again then I refer to an accountant to advise on that. But with superannuation, it is part of the asset pool. So some people forget that an asset is superannuation, or I should say it the other way around. Superannuation is an asset, and that forms part of the asset pool, superannuation. And whether it's um, a self-managed super fund or a defined benefits fund or just an ordinary accumulation interest superannuation fund, that is part of the asset pool, and depending on what it's worth. So... You know, no one's going to be fighting over $5,000 and make a big deal about it. I hope so, yeah. Right? Some people do, 
But mostly, I, from my experience, no one's fighting over someone's superannuation worth 5000 because it's so low. Because the other spouse usually has more. And they're like, I want to keep mine, you keep yours, but it's only worth 5000 your one. Of course, the other person's going to fight and go, but mine's only worth 5000 yours is worth 70000 I want to split it to, that way we can have it equal or whatever percentage it is that they want. Whereas the one with someone who's worth a few million dollars, and a lot of... Um, I've seen it more now. Self-managed super funds can be worth quite a lot because people are throwing and purchasing properties which have increased over over time. So it wasn't worth much at the beginning, but it's they're worth more now because if they did it when it first existed, because self-managed super funds haven't been out for that many years. No. Um, but some people's self-managed super funds are worth quite a lot because they're depending on the amount of that you can put in per year. You know how you get your maximum amounts, accountants know it off the heart. I don't. But there's a whatever lump sums that they can throw in. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then you've also got salary sacrifice. That component goes in and they're building up. And I've seen, and I'm not exaggerating, self-managed super funds worth $5 million, $7 million. Of course someone's going to be fighting over that and wanting to seek a superannuation split. But then, of course, there are tax consequences because in order to either transfer it, they'll have to have another self-managed super fund. So I get that obviously done with the correct lawyers who do self-managed super funds and the correct accountant, and not all accountants do it now because you have to have different qualifications, and then you split it. But there are tax consequences because depending on the setup and the transfer, it's not considered from spouse to spouse, unlike all the other assets, like when I was talking about properties, you don't pay stamp duties when there's us from one property going to one spouse, but in for the main main one, not under um, a self-managed super fund. But if it's under the self-managed super fund, there are all these different laws and different tax implications that you need a specialist who deals with self-managed super funds to give that advice and let the spouse know what's involved, should they be going after that and how much is the tax consequences because when you look at the overall asset pool, you might say, well, look, I might leave your self-managed super fund intact because I can gain from receiving the rest of this and then that spouse might be happy and then you can reach an agreement whereas rather than going to court, it might cost more or whatever. But, yeah, there are tax implications in superannuation as well, which people forget about and you need to look at. A few days later, I spoke to David Moss, the Account Services Director of Married Wells in Sydney. We met to discuss the conversion of a tryst to an ABP, which you can listen to in episode 20. But while we were talking, we also touched on the splitting of super in a divorce or relationship breakdown, so I thought it would be good to give you David's comments here in episode 18. Here's David. All family law cases, it's negotiation. Okay. So it's two parties, generally both have got lawyers or barristers, and one might want the house more than the superannuation, one might want the share portfolio or this or that. Um Potentially, 
all of superannuation can end up with one party or with the other party or it can be split in any any Maybe type way. of way. Okay. Um, there's no there's no formula that needs to be followed for that. It's it's just part of the negotiations between the two parties getting divorced. So it's not that um, a- ABPs have to be allocated one by one or so. It can be well allocated in any way. They, it's not for they have to be allocated and, and treated differently in family law. It, they can be. Um, superannuation is is viewed as a big chunk of money, but if you've got in your superannuation fund one pension worth a hundred thousand dollars, another one worth a hundred thousand dollars, and then an accumulation amount of fifty thousand dollars, it is possible to to divide it up and say, well, the pension of a hundred thousand dollars will go to the, to this spouse, the other spouse is going to maintain the other pension of a hundred, and the other one gets to fifty. So having pensions allows um, means that each separate pension can be treated separately in a family law case. Are the components crystallised? Well, that's right. When you when the family law payment uh, actually occurs, at that point in time, you do the proportional approach. The tax-free taxable is crystallised. Now, I'm saying that if you've got if one person is receiving a pension and that pension's if it's if you've structured it the right, right way. You could, for example, say this per- this person's receiving this pension, which just happened to be 100% tax-free pension, and that 100% tax-free pension could end up being uh, commuted into accumulation, rolled over into their super, and so they got the tax-free part. Versus another, the other spouse might got the tax, might have received the taxable part. Um, I, that's where you've got multiple pensions or, or multiple accounts. That's it's possible to divide, but putting that to the side. Just a, a payment out of, let's say, the accumulation, if there's $500,000 in accumulation, uh, which is tax-free and taxable, it just comes out in proportion. So this was David Moss of Meredith in Sydney. Back to Angelina Teresi of Family Law Practice Australia. Children sometimes have an independent children lawyer acting for them, so they'll be their voice. And we call them, with the abbreviation ICL, So the independent children lawyer act for the children only where there's complications or something serious happening. So who decides whether the child meets an ICL or not? The judge. Oh, okay. When we're in court or we might even recommend it and say, look, mm. Your Honour, we mm. recommend an independent children lawyer because it's complicated. The child needs to tell someone other than mum and dad because the sad part is these kids are torn between the parents. So they're going to say one thing to mum and another thing to dad. And they're not stupid. You know yourself. You've got your children, right? You know that they're smart enough to know to say what you want to hear. So they're going to say one thing to mum, aren't they, in her favour. Oh, mum, I want to stay with you. I don't want to see dad or whatever. Whatever it is that's going to suit them to say to mum. And the same to dad. But you go to court, you can't say mum and dad. Well, the mother's going to say, oh, my children want to stay with me. They want to see me more. Oh, but my son said this, blah, 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 blah. So you need to have that independent children lawyer talking to them, supposed to be independent, and the children will say what their wishes are, then they go into court. It's really sad. Then they've got to go to court and see the family consultant, then they get interviewed by the family consultant. Depending on if the parties have money or not, you get an outside expert because the family consultant's not enough with enough qualifications, so you've got to go to an outside expert. They're getting interviewed by the expert. So who pays Who pays for the experts? The parents. Oh, okay. Or... Maybe the one that's got the money. Mm. So the I can imagine the, the judge 
orders this when the when the parents seem to be out for revenge and just try to hurt each other as much as possible and then Definitely. The children are easily the yeah, collateral yeah, and yeah. they are the collateral people are not can become nasty that's why I use the word revenge some people use revenge I don't even know what it is that that brings them to that point and they hold on to that anger it's not healthy and another question is um, maintenance for children so in, child support yeah, child, child support is assessed by the child support agency I that's completely to... separate from the asset allocation yes Child support is not part of the splitting the assets. Oh, really? No. That's child support is just um, maintaining the children. So that's but shouldn't a that category. Yeah, I'm surprised about that because that's on I can top Im- of uh, that's on top of splitting the assets. Mm-hmm. Un- unless you reach an agreement and you say, "Oh, look, I want to throw in a hundred thousand dollars for school fees and stuff like that." Here it is. It's not really. Um, categorise as splitting the assets because the assets is to do with the spouse, the children are a separate issue and paying the day-to-day expenses and all that stuff is under the category of child support. Yeah, I didn't realise that. I thought it was all together, child support, assets because... Child support is a child support agency. Why I say that is because I've got a calculator and they actually work out what the, say, weekly or fortnightly amount is payable whereas with... um, and even spousal maintenance, which is a different thing as well. Spousal maintenance is someone who can't afford to look after themselves or pay for themselves because they've got no skills. A prime example would be someone who is ill, they can't work and they need support. Mm-hmm. And so an asset split is not going to support them. Mm-hmm. They might have a house, but how are the bills going to be paid? So that's why they get spousal maintenance on top of it. Why I'm surprised is because... Um, the cost of living for a, for a separated couple, of course, are much higher because you need to maintain two homes and usually two larger homes because both parents have the children staying yes. over. So you basically need two family homes. And the better earning spouse might not be able to able to finance all this without selling some assets. So, mm. I, so my, my gut feeling is um, the asset should play a part of that because maybe some of the assets need to be sold to yeah, exactly. finance the um, exactly. this child support. But but it's not. It comes out of the income. It's assessed, it's assessed on the income okay. of both parties. So if the income is not enough to, to, to maintain two family homes, they just have to move out to, to a less expensive suburb or oh, do well, whatever. Yeah, they work it out, yeah. Oh, okay. But it's really sad. But yes, they do. It's not easy. It's absolutely not easy. That's why when you were asking me when do people come over to see you, do they do it after separation or before, the people who are thinking of breaking up, can they afford it, it's literally because how are they going to live day to day? How are the bills going to be paid? Where's the money going to come from? You know, can I have a roof over my head? If we break up, and we're paying rent, how do we live? Where am I going to get the money from? What am I going to do? What am I entitled to? How do I get anything? You know, all those questions. That's why some people, and the truth is, they don't break up because they can't afford to break up. Do you ever have couples that reconcile, not for financial reasons, which to me sounds like a 
not a very romantic reason to reconcile, but do you ever have couples reconciling because they realize there's they actually They made still, a mistake and yeah, there's something there, yes. Yeah. Yes, I have. But that must be really nice to see that. But they've done it a few years later, not straight away. Ah, okay. So they go through... The break up. Break up and then... Still see each other because of the children. Mm-hmm. And there's... um you know, something there between them. And then maybe they're just both having that little break. And they both realise the grass is always just, greener. Yeah, and then they go back to each other. Mm. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. How I've often had, have you seen that? Oh, not many, maybe four times. Mm. I think I'm just thinking of four people. I don't think, as in in my path of life, I've only had it four times. Mm. I have had a repeat client or repeat clients, I should say, coming back to me because they've broken up, remarried, and now they're going through another divorce. They've remarried the same person? No, not remarried the same person, someone else, and they've come back. Oh, okay. But I've had four people marry the same person that they were married to before. And did that... that They didn't remarry, they just did it as de facto. To your knowledge, did that continue? It's still continuing, yes. That's nice, but that's a nice... Yeah, they're not. It's only four people that I know of yeah. in my head that mm. it's happened to. Out of how many clients have you had so far? Oh, thousands. So mm. not many. So not a high percentage. It's under one percent, isn't it? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, there's not many. And, but I don't know if they've broken up. But from what I know of, when the last time I've spoken to them, they were still together and very happy mm. because it's just different. Mm. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and it's some of them are years later. Because I've been doing um, family law for over 10 years, so some of them are right at the beginning up until now. It's good. There are some nice um, outcomes. Some of them are sad outcomes. Welcome back. I was surprised that there seems to be so much up in the air. I expected family law to be more black and white. In the next episode, episode 19, Menosha Bishandani will talk about the sole purpose test in section 62 of the CIS Act. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.